Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. Each week, this podcast brings you the best bits of my weekly radio show on Talk Radio, and this week's guests are Life Enhancing. We have the amazing Stephanie Yaboa talking about the reality of being a fat black woman in the UK. Kalechi Okafor brilliantly describing the reality behind Megan Thee Stallion's recent claims of domestic violence. And Karita Puri telling the stories of partition. First up, it's Stephanie. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. I know Stephanie from Instagram because I follow her and I love her and I think her posts are brilliant but Stephanie for anyone who doesn't follow you on Instagram so doesn't have an immediate visual of what you look like tell us give us a description of you yeah sure so uh my name is Stephanie Yaboa and I am a fat black woman from South London uh who is an author um and a freelance journalist and your new book, A Black Fat Girl's Guide to Living Life Unapologetically, it's called Fatally Ever After, is out now. Tell us why, because we've had books for fat women about how to live life unapologetically. We've had books for black women about how to live life unapologetically. Mm-hmm. Why was there a need for a book specifically for black fat women? So I thought that there needed to be something out there for that specific demographic because um, we have seen a huge increase in the body positivity movement. We've seen how well it's been doing, how it's been forcing people to, you know, be a lot more considerate of bigger sizes and inclusivity and diversity, which is wonderful. Um, However, not a lot of people know that the movement was actually created by plus size black women. Mm -hmm. And since you know, since it's gone mainstream, what we found is that the movement no longer really benefits or serves the the people that helped create it. Um, it's kind of been shifted towards tending to highlight and provide visibility for smaller white voices as opposed to mm-hmm. voices of colour, larger plus size women, um, uh, trans women, women with disabilities, you know, all of these bodies that do not have the same societal privilege as somebody who may be white and a size 12, who are the demographics that are sort of now been, um, they now have the major focus of the movement. And so, you know, it's no longer a safe space for a lot of people within that demographic. And so I just thought, there needs to be something out there that talks about the history of the body positive movement and also talks about the ways in which specifically black plus size women uh, navigate um, living within these intersections because the way in which 
we are treated and the way in which we navigate life is very different to everybody else because there is that added racial element and all of the negative stereotypes that come along with being plus size and black as well. Can you give me some examples of some of those things, which I think you put beautifully there, the, the kind of daily things where you are navigating life in a different way to a size 12 white woman? What are some of the examples there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can range from things such as not being able to go into mainstream stores because not, there's probably maybe two stores in the UK that actually do plus-size clothing um, in their brick-and-mortar stores. So mm-hmm. it's taking away that accessibility of us being able to shop in store. Um, if there are occasions where we can get onto public transport, I know this has happened to me quite a few times, and have people purposely not want to sit next to us. Um, not because, you know, it's a case where we're taking up too much space, but it's like a case of, oh, I don't want to, you know, actually sit next to this to this fat person. Yeah. Um, there have been occasions where I've been in restaurants with friends and I've been eating and I've seen people take pictures of me and they stupidly left their flash on. So I can oh. see that, you know, they're taking pictures of me and my friends who are also plus size eating. I've seen, you know, loads of plus size women being made into memes. Um, the way in which we're treated when we go to the GP and, you know, as well, it's very much um, centred on our weight, even if we're going in for something like a bruise or a cut. And that's something that's happened to me personally where I tripped over because I was climbing a mountain of all things. And I went to the GP and I was like, oh, you know, this bruise isn't um, healing. And they said, "Um, it's probably because you're fat. And it's just like, not every single medical problem a fat person has is because they're fat. And so when you kind of take away from the issue and focus on their weight, you're not providing that care to the other issue, which will then get worse. So there is a degree of medical negligence on that side in how, you know, plus-size people are treated. Um, It's also things such as going out into public and constantly seeing bodies like yours being seen as the before in a before and after picture, um, kind of, you know, insinuating that the before is ugly and it's disgusting Mm. and it's gross. Um, The language that people use surrounding being fat as well can be quite triggering and quite negative. So... If you're chatting with a friend who is probably, you know, if they're a size 10 to 12 and they've put on weight and they say things like, oh, I'm, I feel so fat, I'm getting so fat, ugh, you have to kind of yeah. take into account that the person that you're talking to who may be a size 24, 26, you're indirectly saying, I think your body type is disgusting and I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's down, it, you know, it's, it's things from being very, very overt to, to very insidious. Um, it's also things such as being fetishized when it comes to dating and people assuming that you are, you know, dominant or sassy or aggressive, especially when you're black as well. Mm -hmm. Um, We get thrown these, uh, we get thrown these stereotypes as being very um, feral and aggressive and animalistic. Um, And, you know, it's all assumptions because of our weight. And so, yeah, navigating on a, on a daily basis can be very tiring. Pretty tough. How does all of that stuff, which I know is uh, sort of, it's not even the whole picture. It's just some examples. It's the top of your head examples, right? Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. What was the impact that that had on you as a young girl growing up before you found the body positivity movement? How did it make you feel? Oh, it made me feel such uh, a huge sense of loneliness. 
Mm. Um, growing up, I didn't see myself represented in the media, uh, with the exception of people such as Missy Elliott, who was based yeah. in the States. Um, I didn't see women um, on TV who looked like me. And the only time I saw women that looked like me, they were either playing slaves or they were playing servants or maids or yeah. in places of subservience. And so um, for me growing up, I was bullied um, throughout secondary school, um, physically bullied, verbally attacked, all of these things, um, uh, which led to me developing depression when I was 14. And I've gone through every single kind of diet. I had a really bad eating disorder, which people didn't see because I was fat. So, you know, there was this thing where I think people sometimes think eating disorders are only applicable to slim people, which isn't the case. Um, Plus-size people can have eating disorders, uh, bulimia, all of these kinds of things. But because it's in a fat body, it's seen as doing something good for your body and you are celebrated for the dangerous ways in which we lose weight. Um, uh, we, we're not giving the same kind of compassion or care over what we're doing with our bodies. So um, in my teens, I had a host of eating disorders and um, self-harm, just really bad um, self-esteem and, and confidence. And if it wasn't for the body positive movement, you know, finding it a few years later, I don't know where I would be, but I, in terms of my mental health, it was, absolutely disgusting i had very low self-worth i didn't find myself attractive or desirable um i assumed that i would be alone for the rest of my life because nobody would want to you know go out with somebody that was was plus size and darker skinned black so um yeah it it can take a very huge toll on your self-esteem how did you start to re-educate yourself about yourself so I think with me, one of the one of the first things that I did was I reached a period in my life, maybe in my early 20s, where I absolutely hit rock bottom. Um, I had the worst body image of, of all time. I had taken drastic steps to lose a hun- about 100, maybe to 120 pounds. Wow. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to lose this weight because my birthday was coming up and I wanted to wear a bikini. And so I did some really dangerous things to to lose weight, which included, you know, ordering diet pills off unknown websites and all of these really terrible things. And so I lost the weight, but my mental health was in a very terrible place. Um, I was throwing up all the time. I was very ill. And I remember standing in the hotel room on my birthday and I just thought, who am I doing this for? Because I'm not doing this for me. I am very ill. My body is actively telling me that it's sick because of everything that I've put it through. And I realized at that very moment, it was almost like an epiphany for me that I had been treating my body so disgustingly when all it had tried to do is keep me alive. And I felt so grateful and lucky to still be alive and somewhat healthy after everything that I had done. So when I came back home, I decided to write a letter to my body um, to apologize to it instead of apologizing for it. And I think once I wrote that letter, it was like a five, six page letter where I treated my body as if it was its own separate entity and listed all of the negative self-talk and the self-harm and the the, uh, eating disorders and, and all of these things. I listed them all and had a very big cry and um, apologized to it and just said, you know, you are working 24-7, even when I don't know it, to keep me alive. 
And I'm so lucky to be in a position where I can say that, you know, I feel healthy. I've never had any major, you know, um, diseases or conditions. So thank you. And that's when I decided to start treating it a bit better. Um, I also decided to stop following accounts on Instagram that made me feel bad about my body um, and started following accounts with body types like mine in a bid to normalize my body type. So now when I scroll down Instagram, I see nothing but, you know, bodies from like a size 18 onwards and brands that are also very body positive. And for me, I think being able to normalize um, body types like mine and see them as beautiful has really helped with my um, my own body image. I think you know what you said there about that moment where you sort of went back and wrote a letter apologising to your body. It really resonated with me. I remember doing something very similar a few years ago. It's terrifying how we teach young girls to treat their bodies, to take mm-hmm. them and dismiss them almost from the get-go how do you think we start to change Mm -hmm. young women's understanding of their bodies gosh it's such a difficult one because I think you know there is so much out there in regards to the media and how they want us to view what society thinks is beautiful Um, I have always actively tried to campaign for having some kind of class or workshop in primary schools or or secondary schools to kind of have like body positive um, workshops. Logistically, I'm not sure how that would work, but I always thought it would be something really positive to do for young girls. Um, I think it's important to kind of, um, in terms of the brands that, you know, continuously perpetuate this standard of beauty, what we find is, when, we, when it comes to things such as marketing and PR and, and uh, production and casting, the, the majority of the staff in these areas are white and slim. And as somebody that is, you know, plus size and black, and I, I come from a PR and marketing background where, you know, in some instances, well, in all instances, I've been the only fat person there. I've been the only black person there. Um, it's so important to, for there to be diversity behind the scenes because if you are casting for an ad, a, a beauty advert or a fashion advert yeah. or you're casting for a movie and you are white and slim, everybody around you is white and slim, that is your normality. So when you're ca- casting, you're casting people that you deem as normal, people that look like you. However, if you are to have a bit more diversity behind the background, then it can give people who do look different or people whose bodies fall outside the realm of what society considers beautiful, an opportunity to cast somebody that looks like them, somebody that that they can be representative of of this body shape. And so I think the real power really lies behind the scenes in the, you know, deep in the, you know, the casting rooms and the the PR strategies and all of these things because we can only really change what we consume if we start to change the the beginning of the of the process of of casting. Yeah. Um, I also think it's important for people to, again, curate the feed, curate what they see on Instagram um, and stop following people that make you feel really rubbish about your body. Stephanie, you're totally right. I really want to talk to you about um, dating because you have some incredible stories about your experience as a black fat woman dating and 
I think internet dating has some very big uh, big questions to answer about how it treats everyone, uh, mm-hmm. but particularly plus size and black women. Uh, we're going to talk to Stephanie about that issue coming up next here on Badass Women's Hour. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL, where we are talking to Stephanie Yabel, author of Fatally Ever After. Before the break, we were talking about what it's like to grow up in a society that doesn't like the size you are, doesn't like the colour of your skin, and is going to tell you about it the whole time. Um, but one of the areas that, Stephanie, you touched on slightly when we were talking is the fetishization of black women, of plus size women, of black plus size women when it comes to online dating. For anyone who doesn't understand, what do you mean by the term fetishization? So the fetish is that I can never say the word properly. It's so hard, isn't it? <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, so the fetishization is basically when somebody sees you as a mere object for sexual pleasure um they and often you see it in it's it's very much a power play kind of position so um you get to see like fetishizing uh sometimes with uh white men and black women that's a very very popular one and that comes from you know positions of power whereas you know back in the day when you know black people were a lot more subservient and leading to colonialization and things like that there is that sort of power play there um where men see black women as exotic and and feral and and on all of these really you know horrible sort of imperialistic terminology um and again you see it with fat women as well um it's almost it's very it's very empty there's no kind of um uh intimate connection there they're not looking to kind of see you as a girlfriend they literally almost worship your 
body and that's mm-hmm. it and you know I, I definitely want to say that in in regards to being fetishized there are some women who are definitely into that scene um which is absolutely fine because i i definitely understand how being fetishized and you know being adored for your body constantly can be a source of power and um mm-hmm. it can be it can make somebody feel very confident and and, and empowering in themselves so that's great. But I think for me and my experiences, um, I'm never seen as a person with things to offer or, you know, having a great personality or being talented. It's They only make it about um, my body and how it gets them off, basically. So I, I do find it quite an insidious area. Um, and so a lot of the time, you know, when it comes to online dating, I will get messages from men who um you know they don't refer to me by name they just say oh you know my chocolate fat goddess or something like that that's just so cringy Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's it's a constant thing being addressed Mm -hmm. to like that um i get messages from people saying oh i've never been with a black girl before you guys must be so exotic I've heard you guys are really good in bed. You guys are really sexual. Um, I want you to smother me with your belly. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh my goodness! It 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 really is a jungle out there. It's it's horrible. And so, um, one of the I mean, well, some of the the dating um, experiences that I've gone through is um, because I always say, you know, when it comes to me specifically. For me, dating always ends up one of three things. It's mm. either I am ignored or I am uh, humiliated or fetishized. And so I've been on quite a few dates where I have, you know, I always put my full-length photo um, yeah. on dating sites. And then I always say, oh, by the way, I'm fat or fatter in real life or whatever yeah. the case may be. And as I'm walking up to the guy, um, you could just see the light dim in his eyes. And mm. there were three occasions where the guys, you know, said to me as soon as we met, sorry, I don't think this is going to work. You're too fat for me. And then they've just walked off. Um, there was another occasion where I went on a date with a guy. And before we went on the date, I followed him on Twitter, but he didn't know this. And as he went to the bathroom halfway through, I went onto his Twitter feed and I saw that he was live tweeting the whole date and saying basically, met up with this chick, she's really fat, really ugly, not my type, but I'm still going to see if I can sleep with her at the end of the night anyway. Oh my gosh. And uh, safe to say, I, you know, as soon as he came back from the bathroom, I showed it to him and I left. Um, there was another occasion where I went on a date with a guy who thought it was okay for him to tell me that his great grandparents used to own slaves, um, that they supported apartheid, and that the reason he only dated black girls was because of his white guilt. And for some reason, you know, they thought it was okay to say that to me, you know, knowing what I did as a career and how much I stand up for black lives and things. Um, So there is, um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a minefield. Um, I think the one that I've spoken about the most that has, that did go viral at the time was um, the date that I went on with this guy. Um, We went on a few dates and I, didn't hear back from him and kind of forgot about him for a while. And then I received an email back um, from one of his friends saying that the reason I hadn't heard back from that guy was because they had paid him to go on a date with a fat girl. And he ended up winning apparently 300 pounds. 
Um, oh that was one of the dates that I kind of, uh, I spoke about online because mm-hmm. I follow a lot of people who are also within the body positive community. Yeah. And, you know, this whole trend of pulling a pig is what it's called yeah. is common within the plus size community. So I kind of, I, I tweeted it, you know, not really thinking about it because I just thought, oh, here's another story another for one. the guys. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it took off and it, it went viral and the responses were very mixed. It was a mixture of loads of women saying the same thing had happened to them. And then from all the men, it was, well, you shouldn't have been so fat and you wouldn't have done that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a minefield. How does that make you feel about men now? Um, very, very, uh, hmm. <laughs> I definitely have my walls up. I definitely, there's, there's a sense of not being too trusting um, and also just being very defensive about myself now. So I don't know. I don't, I, I wouldn't say I'm dating at the moment because I'm, to be perfectly honest, very scared. I'm very scared of, yeah. you know, being ghosted again or being told that I'm not, desirable or they don't find me attractive or you know having a prank played on me again um and so i think when you're constantly used to rejection in that way and when you're used to rejection based on your size and the way you look it can leave you feeling a bit like it can leave you feeling with um feelings of very low self-worth and thus not trusting people to you know treat you the way you deserve to be treated because you're constantly on edge and you're constantly wary about, you know, what this guy is doing and his his motivations behind doing it. Do you think that there needs to be some better form of vetting or ability mm. to report or security when it comes to online dating so that women can flag these experiences and maybe try and root some of them out? Mm. Absolutely. I think so. I think um, one app that I think is quite good at doing that at the moment is Bumble because they're very female focused. And if somebody is being really hostile or rude um, or hypersexual, you can report it under one of their tabs um, and report the person. And I think they get they get dealt with. Um, But one thing that I've always thought would be a good thing to add onto dating websites, however controversial it may seem, I do think it will work. Um, is if they added the way in which you can filter out people based on, you know, their ages and their heights. I do think there should be a weight-based one just so that once you log on, you can see, you know, a list of guys who would prefer or would be open to dating somebody who was bigger instead of endlessly scrolling through guys and liking them in the hopes that, you know, they will swipe right on you or that they will answer you back at least you kind of have a list of people who you know like your body type so you can be more confident in approaching them and and messaging them first and things like that. I've always thought that would be a good thing, but I know some people disagree with that because they think it's um, segregating. But Mm. for those who find it difficult to date and are, you know, very wary about it, it would be nice to kind of have our own section where we kind of can feel confident in dating. Do you think that lends itself to fetishization then? Or is it... Because I think that's a really... I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think it's, there's also a really interesting point around at what point does just preference turn into fetishization and how do we kind of... Not police the difference, but explain mm. the line to people and get them to understand it. Exactly. That, but see, that, that's the, the other... That's a double-edged sword, that, mm. that uh, the suggestion that I just gave, because yeah. you will yeah. absolutely get people... <laughs> 
who are fetishizing. So it's a case of, well, how do we, how do we sort of control that? How do we stop the guys and the girls who have fetishes from reaching out to women who are looking for, you know, long-term relationships or friendships and things like that? And I don't know if it's a situation where there just needs to be an app specifically for plus-size dating, but an yeah. app that is manually manually reviewed and manually controlled by people so that, you know, in order to sign up to the app, you have to complete, like, a really well-thought-out profile. Yeah. You have to be very thorough in every single answer you give so that we know that you're not here just to, you know, hook up. You're actually mm-hmm. looking for a relationship. So it's a case of maybe, like, manual moderation, which in turn can, can be a lot of time... Um, it can take up a lot of time. So I'm still working on how that can be achieved. Uh, when you get it, it's going to be the million pound idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, it's so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences so honestly and beautifully with us. Um, I've loved talking to you. And Stephanie's book, if you want more of this, if you want more of Stephanie's kind of just great common sense, her book, Fatally Ever After, is out now. She's brilliant fun i recommend following her on instagram as well if you want some really beautiful photos to follow this is the badass women's hour podcast you can get in touch on all the socials on at badass women's hour now let's get back to our guest now if you follow megan the stallion on instagram you might have seen the video she posted this week talking about her former partner shooting her in the feet and why she didn't report it Well, actor, writer and director Kalechi Okafor says this is because we don't value black women and that makes the world unsafe for them. She's here to talk to us about that now. Hi, Kalechi. Hi, Harriet. Tell us, um, for anyone who didn't see the video, tell us a little bit about what Megan Thee Stallion was talking about and how you felt when you saw that. Um, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt really sad for Megan Thee Stallion when I saw that video simply because the fact that she had to come online to refute claims that, you know, she'd made up being shot in the foot by um, Tory Lane, like, you know, um, you know, people were questioning her, well, if you were shot, then why were you dancing, you know, the, the week after? So many things, like, basically, why are you still living? Why are you carrying on? Like, everything is normal um, after this has happened to you, because I guess they expected her to be acting differently but the main question they had is why did you tell the police that you stepped on glass and then she has to basically spell it out to everybody that you know we see that black people in america are being killed by Mm. the police at a disproportionate exponential rate in america so being in that situation the helicopters flying overhead she said that the first thing that came to her mind is she just wanted to make it out of that situation alive she didn't want to alert the police to the fact that they there was a gun in the car because instantly they might have started shooting at them so she feared for her life she feared for the life of her abuser in that situation and the two other people who were also present and i felt that really viscerally as a black woman that you could be um, you know, the victim of violence in any sort of form, but also consider the way that authority and society could treat your abuser because, you know, they're not white, basically. And that's a very odd place to be in where you have to consider the safety of everybody else who isn't necessarily, con- like, considering your safety. 
Well, I think it's um I I think that trope of protecting the abuser is very common in domestic mm-hmm. violence. We see it, but what I think is what you're pointing to here, which is I think so important, is that it is magnified to an exponential level when it mm-hmm. comes to black people and the way that they are treated, particularly in the US, but across the world, by police. Mm-hmm. Do you think that makes the world less safe for black women, particularly? Definitely. Malcolm X um, talks about it in well, talks about it in one of his speeches where he says that black women are the least protected in society. And that isn't hyperbole. Like, that's what we've seen play out. We've seen it play out in terms of, you know, colonization, the transatlantic slave trade and, you know, Venus Hottentot, also known as Sarah Bartman, and how her body parts were still displayed in a museum in France um, in embarrassingly late into, like, the um, 80s or to the early 90s, that is not something that we see happen to um, another race of woman having her body parts still on display because there is a certain way that black women's bodies are viewed. We also know with the Five Times More campaign, for instance, that the uh, mortality rate for black mothers is five times um, higher than that of their white um, mother counterparts. So black women are five times more likely to die during childbirth or soon after in comparison to white women. So we've got to look at these stats and think, like, why do these things keep happening? Because these tropes are there that, oh, well, you know, black people, they don't feel the pain the same way. Um, You know, they're angry, they're aggressive. All of these things basically come back to black people are unfeeling. So therefore, where can you feel empathy for people that you don't or can't see as victims do you think that black women experiencing domestic violence in the uk would also feel less likely to report it to the police definitely i know of numerous instances where that's the case and it's also how um we normalize these things as well because again we know that for instance the disproportionate stop and search rates where it concerns black men and boys we know about the disproportionate um stats when it comes to force that's used in these situations as well so you don't necessarily want to be the person even if you are a victim of domestic violence to put um this black person or this black man um into this situation where they will be treated in a manner that you know that in a grand scheme of things might be disproportionate to how other people are treated so if there's so many things to weigh up And it's almost like your safety comes below everything else that is being weighed up. And that is a very, very odd place to be, to be considering every other person's circumstance and putting yourself last. And I obviously think that this is something that does need to change. I'm really, really glad that Megan Vassalian did go on record and did say, actually, no, this is what happened. And that she did go back to the police and say, okay, uh, let me tell you exactly what happened but she needed to get out of that immediate situation first of Mm. you know the police arriving not knowing what had been going on i mean we've seen it played out with um jacob blake Uh, allegedly he was breaking up a fight and then he's now paralyzed because of being shot seven times in the back so we're seeing what can happen when police arrive on the scene not knowing what's going on but very very aware of the criminalization and the vilification of blackness and how that will play out for black people. So Megan Thee Stallion wasn't irrational in her fear of what could happen if she had said in that moment that, you know, there's a gun here and I've been shot in the foot. Um, She had to consider how everything else would play out. Also, it just 
absolutely strikes me that we shouldn't we should understand that victims of domestic violence in the moment that they are being abused mm-hmm. are already in an unsafe position so yes. they are not going to be probably be waving their arms and being like yes let me tell you exactly what's going on here they are mm-hmm. going to be looking to the best way they can protect themselves which sometimes is also going to be how do i protect my abuser right now yes definitely definitely and and i think there's shock there there are so many there's a culmination of emotions and feelings that are taking place at that time that if someone were to play it back they might have they might make different decisions but in that moment you Mm. i think it's almost autopilot and it is about your safety it is that kind of making sure that you can survive that immediate situation first and and figuring out what the situation is a lot of people actually don't recognize um the red flags they don't recognize that what they've experienced is a you know abuse of some form they don't recognize it to be that thing Mm. this was blatant in that Mm. she was shot in her foot but there are um, you know there are myriad reasons um and ways that um you know domestic violence plays out and it's being aware of those things as well as being educated in how those things can play out as well and that might make it harder for people to speak out especially when you've got maybe cultural um, inferences there as well and influences we are do you think this is going to lead to more black women speaking about their experiences with domestic violence i don't know i don't know i would hope so but there is a complex conversation to be had there is the loyalty that you feel and the natural kind of protective um kind of the protective instinct that you feel for people who look like yourself and you understand how the system treats them but then understanding that you are of value you are worthy and you deserve to um, be safe so it's it's a definite conversation that needs to happen. And I think it's through those conversations and not feeling guilt, not feeling shame about the fact that this happens because it can happen to anybody. And I think that that's what's also important about the Megan Thee Stallion um, situation because here is a beautiful, incredibly beautiful, incredibly successful, supremely talented woman. And Mm. even she is subject to this so it doesn't mean anything you know sometimes people who are victims of domestic violence think oh well i deserved it because i'm not beautiful or i'm this or i'm that and they they internalize the violence that wasn't ever theirs to hold so we're seeing that even somebody by all means that ticks all of the boxes of someone you'd think that these kind of things wouldn't happen to it happens to them too so none of us are exempt from the possibility of that happening to us so therefore we have to think of ways that we can ensure our safety i mean we should say that uh tori lannis hasn't commented on megan stallion's uh video and that i think he was arrested for carrying concealed weapon but not for domestic violence and i think that is a sort of indicative of the fact that we are still in a place where it is he said she said on things that it shouldn't be yeah, and, and it, it therefore, um, again, like you say, it's indicative of how the system cares about women and specifically how it cares or does not care about black women. So we see it there that, you know, domestic violence is not something that's taken seriously enough. And when we then hear that, you know, women go on to defend themselves and, you know, they end up killing their abuser or something, 
we hear a completely different narrative. And um, again, they're not showing the support that they they might have needed in 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 that circumstance. So it's very sad to me that even there's no space basically there's no space where the woman comes out necessarily winning if we if we continue to rely on the system and especially for black women they are underprotected um over policed when it comes to their bodies over policed when it comes to their attitudes and where is the respite where is the space for joy where is the space for love, where is the space for care? Where is the space for protection? These are the things that we should um, be striving for. And yeah, we wouldn't expect authorities to be the ones to bring it because they're more concerned that he had a concealed weapon. Maybe that's a mini sort of, mm. I don't know, victory, because at least they're addressing that. But it's just mm. sad that they can't address the actual violence. Kelechi, I, I can't add anything to that. It was beautifully put. Thank you so much. Kelechi Okafor, the actor, writer and director, talking about Megan Thee Stallion and her uh, video about domestic violence that she'd experienced and setting, feeling the need even to set the record straight on that. Just, I mean, the way we try and police women's bodies, particularly black women's bodies, and yet fail to support those women's bodies when they need it is something that I will never ever be able to entirely come to terms with I don't think This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast you can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour July to August is South Asian Heritage Month and if you're not even sure about what part of the world that applies to then our next guest is going to help you understand because she has been talking to people across Britain who are witnesses to one of the most tumultuous events of the 20th century but that event is not something we talk about very much possibly because we're a little bit ashamed of our own role in it. Kavira Puri, journalist and broadcaster is here with me now. Hi Kavira. Hi, hi there. Um, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are talking about uh, your new book, well, not new book, but the paperback of your new book, Partition Voices, which is coming out this month. And it's you interviewing people currently living in Britain who experienced the partition, um, which is the partition of India into India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. For anyone who doesn't know about that event in history, which... I'm going to be totally honest, until about two years ago, I didn't know really very much about it at all. Tell us a little bit about what happened and when. Well, it's a, it's a good question to ask that because most people don't know about it. And it's worth saying most South Asians don't always know about it too. So uh, the British were in India for many centuries, but the Raj took over in 1858. And after a long independence struggle... Um, by people like Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru, the British left India in 1947. But when they did that, they divided India along religious lines because um, the the Muslim League, uh, who represented some Muslims, wanted their own independent homeland because they felt that their their rights as Muslims wouldn't be protected. There were about a quarter of the population, about 100 million Muslims. And so the British divided India. Um, but the reason it's we talk about it is because what happened was it became the largest mass migration that the world has ever seen outside war and famine. So you had Hindus and Sikhs fleeing to India and Muslims fleeing to Pakistan. And, you know, these were places that people had lived on 
in for generations and they had to leave in a hurry because what happened was there was this huge kind of violence against the other the other being the other religion and around a million people died and so people kind of had to start their lives afresh and the reason that it matters in britain and we you know we think of the partition as something happened really far away but it's not because the, the lot of people who came in the 1950s and early 1960s from the Indian subcontinent were people who had lived through partition. And it was a very traumatic event, not just losing your home, but witnessing violence, seeing people in your family being killed. But they came to Britain with those stories and they never really talked about it. One of those people was, in fact, your father. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And until you started writing this book, had you spoken to him about it or was it something he just never mentioned? I tried to speak to him about it um, many times. He was always really happy to talk about his childhood in Lahore and then, you know, working life in, in Delhi and then coming to Britain in 1959. But he would never talk about partition. He would just close down the subject and say, why do you want to talk about that? Um, and so it became the thing that, you know, we couldn't really talk about. And I knew that I couldn't broach it. And mm. when I spoke to friends of mine of South Asian heritage, they would say that was something quite, quite similar. And so that really that was why when it came to the 70th anniversary in 2017, I felt mm. if I if we don't record these stories, they'll be gone forever, you know. And that's 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 my history. But it's also... A history that connects Britain and and the Indian subcontinent. Why do you think uh, those of South Asian heritage are reluctant to talk about it? And why do you think we don't talk about it more in schools, in British education, in our history lessons? I think it's too, well, two things really. I think they didn't talk about it because when they came in the 50s and 60s, you know, they couldn't just think about the past. They had to get on with life. It was quite a hostile environment. Um, they had to, you know, fight against racism, fight yeah. for equal pay, and they just got on with their lives. Mm. Um, and partition is one of those things. There's a lot of honour. Uh, it's about honour, dishonour, shame. It's hard, a hard thing to talk about. And then, like me, your children are born here. They don't know about the past. They might not even know that you, like my dad was from Pakistan. But I think... A really big thing, and this is what makes people feel comfortable about talking about traumatic memories, is you need a public space. And and because in Britain there is an institutional silence about empire, how empire ended, um, it's not taught in schools, there's no memorial, um, there's no museum to, to that particularly to that time, there wasn't a comfortable public space for people to, to air their memories and so and so they didn't and i think what why why don't we talk about it well we don't we don't teach empire at school and partition is just how it ended and i i think you know it's 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 difficult it's complicated um you know just just look at how we when, when we talk about empire now it's 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 fraught with complications and I think that, you know, when the British left India, they left in a huge hurry. Yeah. The, the, the the dividing line was drawn in 40, 40 days. That's nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was quite shambolic. And 
you know, huge numbers of people die. That's not really something you want to talk about or celebrate. And then there are other really difficult things to talk about what the British were doing while they were in India. You know, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, for example, in 1919. And so I suppose for all those reasons, there has been this institutional science. There still is this institutional science. And you talked about South Asian Heritage Month. And I can't believe it's 2020. And we've only had our first South Asian Heritage Month. And what I see is this outpouring of second and third generation people who want to know their history so desperately and who want to see themselves reflected in the curriculum and their story told because ultimately their story is a story of Britain. You know, you want to understand why your parents or your grandparents came over. It was it's 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 because of empire. They, you know, Britain asked went to their former colonies to ask people to come after the Second World War to help rebuild the country and they looked to their former colonies. And that's that's why I'm talking to you today, because of that connection. And so I think there has to be a way that we can we can find our way through, through to talk about why we have over three million South Asians in our country today. I think what you say there is so interesting about people wanting to talk about their heritage because you actually made a Radio 4 series, uh, I think it's Three Pounds in My Pocket, which was mm-hmm. about the social history of British South Asians in the post-war mm. years. And it's on a fourth series. So yeah. there, there's a sort of... I think, uh, tell me what you think on this, but I think there is something when it comes to actually looking at these areas that there is an appetite for it. There's a desire to understand our history. There is a desire to uh, know for those from the Southeast Asian community about their history and their parents and their grandparents' history. And also I would hope that there is a desire from uh, the rest of the UK to understand our role in that history. But it, but I, I've never even seen it as it is our role. It's, I've mm. always pitched this history as British history because that's what it is. You know, so I so three pounds in my pocket is through oral testimony, speaking to people who came in the 50s and 60s and charting their lives through the decades and, and, and intertwining that with political history and how they change political history mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, and And it's just, remembering those times and actually the histories are so interlinked and I and I think that you're absolutely right there is a hunger amongst British South Asians um, and I would say more so as the generations go on actually um, and you've got to remember our our link to this country is one or two generations that's not very much actually you can feel quite fragile it can feel fragile sometimes especially when you know people are talking about immigration and it can be it, it, it can be difficult and you, and people are saying go home and you just think hang on a sec this is my home and you know you have to remind people that this is our home and that our parents our grandparents came but we were born here we have nowhere to go and and I think that that's why that this is British history we are all part of contemporary Britain you know and I think and I hope that this kind of it will be celebrated in that in that way and that's what I hope my series does. Kavita of all the people you interviewed was there one that sort of sticks in your memory or that impacted you the most? Mm, People always say that and I never know what to say because honestly every every single one does but I think what I would say about the partition Mm. interviewees is that 
that what when they when I spoke to them, they they talked to me as if they were that young boy again or yeah. that young girl seeing that awful memory. And all I'd say is things that happened so long ago, like you know, First World War soldiers, mm-hmm. they don't forget that the years go by, but that memory is still so fresh and it has shaped them. And sometimes, you know, trauma can be passed down through the generations. And I think that is what mm-hmm. I was left with. But I was also left with how even if you've left your country, like my dad left Lahore to go to India. He was Hindu. He never, he always felt like Lahore was part of him. He was born there. You know, his his parents had a great connection there. And I think that never left you. And so that even if you live in exile, that that place is still yours too. And and so in a way, when people say to South Asians, where are you from? It's a really complicated answer. So they will, people say to me, where are your parents from? And I, could, I, I know I could say the short answer is my dad's from India. But actually, you know what? He goes back a little bit further. He actually was born in what is now Pakistan. Um, and so it's, it's complex. And I think that's what I took away from all those interviews that I did. Kavita, thank you so much for telling us about what you've learned and sharing it with us. Kavita Puri, author of Partition Voices, which is out now. Um, and the story of Partition, when you go and study it, is so fascinating. It has so many layers and it has, I think, so much for us to learn today that we should all at the very least be aware of it if not actively studying it and um, so Kavita's book great place to start you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please it helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us we'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 